Welcome to the Church Leaders Podcast, where we're helping you lead better every day. And now here's your host. Welcome to the Church Leaders Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Day, and we have a fantastic episode for you this week. I had the opportunity to connect with Mark Demaz. Mark is a recognized leader in the multi-ethnic church movement. He's also a best-selling author and a much-needed voice encouraging the church to really reassess how we are seeking to live out the gospel in our communities. Mark planted the Mosaic Church of Central Arkansas in 2001, where he continues to serve as directional leader. He's also the co-founder of the Mosaics Global Network. And I believe you will be encouraged and challenged by our conversation as Mark addresses why we need to re-examine how we are being the church. He also shares some inspiring stories of churches who are redeeming their neighborhoods and helps us see what Matthew 5.16 looks like in action. Mark, I just want to welcome you to the Church Leaders Podcast. We're excited to hear from you today and uh, glad you could be uh, be a part. Yeah, great to be with you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, definitely. Um, now, as we look back across history, there have been times that we see the church was really the primary change agent within culture. But today, um, that doesn't seem to be the case so much. Why do you believe the church does not currently have that role in our world? Uh, yeah, well, you know, it's a variety of reasons from my perspective, but uh, just to, to list a couple um, and to talk about a couple at the first. First of all, the church typically, we, we know this, that people often talk about the church as it's all, it's behind culture, et cetera. And that's really true. The church lags behind changes in the culture. Uh, that's been historically true. On, uh, I mean, in recent history, in American history, certainly we're talking about America. Typically, we lag behind cultural changes. We have to process them, understand them, think about this. What does this mean for us? And so they're typically, it, it's understood generally that the church lags behind. But the other reason it lags behind, it, it, not just from a process standpoint, but also because intrinsic to our understanding is, of, of the church in America is this concept that the church should inform culture and culture should, rather than the culture inform the church. And while I certainly believe that, the problem is the church is not informing culture and culture is not listening to the church, not even looking to the church for leadership. And that's when you, it begs the question why. Um, so not only in terms of just taking time to process changes, what that mean for us, disrupt established systems, but also this idea that we should be leading the culture, in other words, not informed by culture, but rather informing culture. The problem with that is we're not. And then again, it begs this question, why? Why are we not? And I suggest in my new book, Disruption, uh, I don't just suggest, frankly, I state, one of the biggest reasons for that is because the church typically operates only on a spiritual front. Uh, it measures success by numbers, dollars, and buildings, particularly related to Sunday mornings. How many people get saved? How many people get baptized? How many people in discipleship groups? Its entire function continues to be related to just spiritual things, if I can use that word. But the problem is the culture is demanding and, and, and it is in great need of not only spiritual transformation, but justice or social justice or biblical justice transformation along justice lines. Let's call that for our, our discussion today social or social justice or biblical justice. It's in great need of justice. And likewise, it's in great need of economic redemption. 
in local communities, uh, seeing people uh, create jobs, I should say, create jobs, encourage small business, see a reduction in crime, repurpose abandoned space that exists in the inner cities of the country, where we're not just preaching redemption, we're actually demonstrating redemption uh, in, in, the ju- in justice, local justice, as it were, as well as economics. And so essentially that becomes a three-legged stool. Um, and I believe, as I write about in my new book, Disruption, this is the future of the American church. If the church is going to get ahead of culture, if the church is going to lead culture and actually be heard and respected by an increasingly diverse and cynical society, we can no longer simply play only in a spiritual sandbox. We've also got to be in the justice space and the economic space of local communities. When, like a three-legged stool, this will bring real community transformation uh, beyond rhetoric to results for the glory of God. You know, that, that's that's good. Now, um, in your new book, I, I just love the subtitle. It's Repurposing the Church to Redeem the Community, which you're just touching on. So how does the church need to be repurposed to positively impact culture and to, to redeem the community? You speak of economics and justice as two places that the church maybe isn't spending as much time. How, how does a church practically enter yeah. into that? First of all, you have to understand local church pastors, the leadership has to understand that where, in a sense, I'm coming from in, in, in talking about this or in thinking about it. And what it's not is from a position of political correctness. This is not about political correctness. This is not about changing demographics. This is not about Rodney King asking us all to get along. The fact that Barack Obama is biracial somehow represents the changing face of America. All that is well and good. What people need to understand, this is biblical. It is right, This, this, what we're talking about. And it's the hope of the gospel's advance in an increasingly diverse and cynical 21st century society. So how does a church begin to do this? First, it has to understand what, what I'm sharing and what these concepts we're discussing today in a theological and a very biblical way. I have laid that out in my book. I've laid that out in other writings. Again, this isn't about political correctness. It's about biblical correctness. There's a theology to this that is not eisegeted. It's exegeted. It's brought out of Scripture. It's there. We just typically don't understand it. Therefore, it doesn't get preached, and we have not had that built into our systems of church planning, growth, and development over the last 50 to 70 years. Particularly, that's true in the white culture, of which I'm a part. African-American churches, the inner city churches, uh, historically in this country, you don't have to encourage them so much to be involved in justice or even economics, because from the plight of African-Americans in this country, desperation has led to innovation. And if they, as churches, historically did not take care of their own in terms of justice, in terms of economics, the majority culture system was not going to take care of them. And so for many, many years, decades even, the African-American churches, particularly in the urban centers of our our society, they have operated not only with the spiritual, uh, proclaiming spiritual truth, but truths of justice, economic transformation, and the white church needs to understand and catch up to that. Now, in the white evangelical church, as well as all across, not just, I shouldn't just limit it to whites, but in the American church more broadly today, everything is compartmentalized typically. So, for instance, you have, you're, you have some types that are all about God, the gospel, and they'll talk about the gospel, the gospel. We've got to talk about the gospel, and, and, and it's all about Jesus. And, and sometimes you want to look those folks in the eye, and, and, and you want to ask them a question, hey, in all your gospel, where's the justice? You know, where's the economics? Then you have your justice types, and they're all like justice, 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 marching in the streets, speaking truth to power. 
And sometimes you want to look and ask them, where's the Jesus? Where's the church in all your justice? And so what you find in denominations, networks, personalities, uh, local churches is a splintering or compartmentalization along spiritual and social fronts. And, and people don't understand typically uh, in, in the evangelical world and particularly conservatives that reconciliation, repentance or corporate repentance, justice, these things are not peripheral to the gospel. They're intrinsic to the gospel. And, and so we collectively as an American church need to understand that these things are not individual strains that need to be compartmentalized or should no longer be compartmentalized. Rather, we should be operating on a spiritual, social, and financial fronts in and through the local church. And this is how it gets repurposed to get ahead of culture and to be leading culture, a leading force in culture, again, an increasingly diverse society. So then how would you respond to a pastor? You've probably heard this. I know I have. Who says, listen, when we get caught up in social justice issues, we're watering down our focus. Really, we need to be all about the gospel. That's what the church is all about. How would you respond to that? Well, and twofold. First of all, we're not watering down the gospel. We're actually undermining the gospel by not being engaged in the issues of our local communities in, in advancing biblical justice and economic transformation. The systemic segregation of the American church and the local church today is undermining the very gospel that the, this pastor, is, so to speak, that you're, you're hypothetically putting out. The very gospel this person wants to, to uh, advance, to share, to have people— understand in a credible way is being undermined because the local church, number one, is systemically segregated with only uh, 13 or 14 percent of churches having at least 20 percent diversity in their attending membership. That The person we're talking about, so to speak, hypothetically, is actually undermining the gospel through perpetuating the systemic segregation of their church. And number two, they are they are undermining the credibility of the gospel by not being engaged in justice. It's almost like that old phrase, um, so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good. In Matthew 5.16, Jesus did not say, let them hear your good words and glorify your Father. That's how they'll see glorify. To glorify the Father in heaven essentially means to shine a light on who he is and how he loves. That's a, that's a street-level definition of the word to glorify God. So in Matthew 5, 16, Jesus did not say, let them hear your good theology. Let them see your, your big church full of people who look just like you. He did not say, let them hear your good words. He said, let them see your good works. And, and that's how a society, that's how a community will recognize who God is, how he loves, and ultimately be attracted uh, and, and receive that gospel message. So we are way past the days of sharing four spiritual laws on the beach. People don't need the words. They need the works. And of course, the works have to be underwritten, as it were, undergirded by strong theology. I'm all about that. I've got a doctorate in exegesis. I am a theologian. But the, in the absence of good works, in, if we simply preach a message of redemption— without actually redeeming communities, redeeming abandoned space and property, uh, helping people find their way to GEDs and, and degrees and, and, and to good, uh, well-paying jobs that helps their family become stable and children. These are the redemptive works that coupled with the words of redemption will advance the very gospel our hypothetical pastor is concerned uh, with advancing. That's good, Mark. That, that's, that's excellent. So you, you touch on economics, obviously. This is one of the, uh, the three legs of the stool. And, ma- and many people seem to think that 
conversations about church and money usually don't go well. Uh, there are lots of things attached to the idea of money when it comes to church. How can you walk people through this idea that economics is something that the church needs to be addressing in order to to really help redeem our communities? Yeah. Um, when it comes to economics, again, the, predominantly in America today, the church is polarized along the, the spiritual front or the social justice or the biblical justice front. You've got your justice types, you've got your gospel types, and never the two should meet. Although, of course, there's a growing center on that. But very few people, even in that, uh, with, with this in mind, are thinking economics. Now, why is the American church so adverse to thinking about helping to create jobs, repurpose abandoned property, lower crime, all the things that are attached to economics in a community? Why are, do we not, have we traditionally not gotten engaged and involved in that? Uh, one of the biggest reasons, and in fact, if I could just say, here is the biblical reason, the theological reason is because Jesus overturned the money changers in the temple. And that verse has been so cited and often misquoted, misunderstood, misappropriated um, through the years to suggest that it is not the business of the church to be engaged in anything that makes a profit, that anything that that has to do with money. Now, um, that's the biblical side. On the on the just the very human side, as we know, churches, pastors, ministry leaders through the years, uh, maybe the decades, maybe the centuries, have have exploited resources for the to build their own kingdoms for their own personal gain, and so that too creates an adverse reaction from the church when it thinks about economics. So on those two fronts, where if business enters the church then we could potentially be mercenary about it, building our own kingdoms, advancing our own causes uh, you know, in, in a nefarious way, as well as this verse in the Bible. Well, on the first point, on the personal side, just because some people misappropriate funds and, and use them, you know, leverage church assets for their own gain, doesn't mean the rest of us who are otherwise good-hearted and good-natured, who can put good systems into place, who can recognize this isn't about building my kingdom— but advancing the kingdom of God, uh, that doesn't mean because, as it were, there's a few bad apples that the rest of us should not pursue good, sound economic strategy. And on terms of the Bible verse where Christ in the New Testament is, is shown to be overturning the money changers in the temple, we have to recognize this was not about for profit. This was not about uh, people making a fair profit on goods and exchange of goods. This was about injustice. It's an injustice passage, because uh, a justice passage, because what was happening is that three times during the year, Jews would come to Jerusalem for feast days, and at those times, they would offer sacrifice in the temple. Well, to offer sacrifice, depending on your sin, station in life, etc., you would have to purchase animals, varying animals. It could be a bull, it could be a turtle dove, uh, what have you, to offer proper sacrifice according to the Mosaic Law. Well, this in, in the outer courts of the temple where these animals were being sold, and, and they're being sold at, at, a, at a top dollar unfair profit margin, the same way when you go to the—maybe you go to the airport and you got to pay $5 for a bottle of water, or you go to a, a sports center and you got to pay 8 bucks for a hot dog and a drink because you're a captive audience. You need that food. You want that food. And so, therefore, vendors can sell it at three or four times— or more what it's worth. Well, in the case of the temple, when the poor were coming particularly to worship, and, and they to, to do this properly, according to Mosaic law, they had to pay 
you know, I don't know, I'm just making this up. Let's say they had to pay $5 for a turtle dove uh, in American currency. Well, these guys were selling them for $20, a turtle dove. The poor couldn't afford it. Therefore, they couldn't worship. And that's what drew the anger and the ire of Jesus. So it wasn't about a marginal or fair profit. It was about an exorbitant profit in which people were being taken advantage of and therefore excluded from worship. And so we have to rightly understand what was going on in that passage. And when we do understand that, then we can, again, with with smart and good systems in place to protect us from the mercenary side, we should be leveraging church assets to create for-profit income that does, and do so in a way that not only fund, helps to fund the church in the future, but also, and more importantly, is creating jobs, generating tax revenue, ab- uh, repurposing abandoned property, encouraging small business, and the like. And this, again, all fits together under a three-legged stool to advance the credible witness of God's love for all people in an increasingly diverse society. That's fascinating, Mark. Now, as you're sharing, I'm thinking, I'm trying to envision this. So can you share with us maybe um, a story of a church or some churches who are really addressing these economic issues in their community in a powerful and redemptive way? Yeah. um, So what does that look like? Well, for instance, I'll just use a case in point from our church. And and, and let me, can I, I hate to digress, but let me just throw in this one other thing about economics for anybody listening. Yeah, definitely. When the government takes away our tax-exempt status, as local churches. Did you hear what I said? When the government takes away our tax exempt status, how fast can that happen? Many people believe it'll happen, you know, within the next 10, 15 years, five years, but probable in our lifetime. How fast can that happen? As fast as it takes to swear a new president in for them to march down Pennsylvania Avenue and parade, go to the Oval Office and sign an executive order. Tens of thousands of churches potentially can go out of business overnight Tens of thousands, if not more, of pastoral and ministry jobs could be lost uh, when that happens because the church is so ill-prepared for that, because by and large, the church is taught to sustain itself on tithes and offerings. If the church loses 20, 30, 40 percent of its tithes and offerings because a certain percentage of people no longer want to give as much because there's there's no tax incentive, we are woefully ill-positioned for that to happen. So when you understand these types of things, when you have a good heart to bless and redeem a community, um, desperation leads to innovation, and this is particularly true in the urban church. So for instance, in our church, my church, 16 years into it, multi-ethnic, economically diverse, only 66% of our budget is generated through tithes and offerings. A full third of it comes through multiple streams of income that we have generated over time and put together. And, and so on the for-profit side, one of these ways involves the intentional repurposing of abandoned space, uh, not only for the church, but for the community. So, for instance, we purchased an old Kmart, 100,000 square foot. I rented half that space to a major fitness club uh, in the city of Little Rock. It created 30 jobs. It brought in $1.7 million of infrastructure reinvestment. The building went from $1.5 to $4.2 million in appraised value. I was able to build out my side with the equity that we achieved through that. And at the end of the day, that club, um, 6,000 people from an urban uh, community with 28% poverty became members of that club because I charged that, that the owner uh, such a low rate for rent 
that it makes it affordable for him to offer his services for only $10 a month to the community with no uh, uh, annual or, or per down fees. It's a month to month contract. And the money that they pay us as a church pays for our mortgage entirely. So my entire building will be paid for in 10 to 15 years because of the rent rate, the rent roll that I charge to this, this man. On a $16,000 note currently, in terms of both build out and mortgage, our church is generating $9,500 of rental income at the moment on our, on our property and paying this note down. That's smart economics. Here's another one. Um, I found out, for instance, and I've worked in small churches, large churches, so let me take it down to a micro level. I, uh, this past Christmas uh, in 2016, I asked our executive pastor, how much do we pay for people to drink coffee on Sunday mornings and give coffee away? He said $200 a month. That's $2,400 a year. I know in some small churches, $2,400 a year is a lot of money. I went to a church years and years ago. Uh, as a part-time youth pastor, the average, the budget for the youth ministry was $50 a month. That's $600 a year. So $2,400 a year in those environments is a lot of money. I took some church assets over the Christmas break. I bought a few tables and chairs. I bought a microwave. I bought um, a cappuccino machine. I bought two waffle irons. Uh, and essentially, I created a $2 cafe. So I found out you could buy Jimmy Dean sausage biscuits at Sam's for $10 for a 12-pack. That's $0.95 cents a biscuit. I could charge $2. McDonald's is charging $3.50 across the street. My people show up for church on time. We sell waffles. We sell the, these little biscuits, $2. Cappuccino, $2. It's affordable to the people, so they're blessed. But for us, it not only will give us $2,400 of income or, or $200 a month, it's likely to give us two to three times that, and I'll turn a $2,400 loss into maybe a sixty-eight or $6,000 or so dollar profit each year just through smart economics. Again, the church is conditioned not to think like that. I think it's a mistake. In the future, we need to think about that. And if you think smart about that, you can bless a community and advance a credible gospel. Mark, I, I can't help but think that there's probably some pastors who are listening who would say, you know, business really isn't my wheelhouse. You know, that's not something that I'm that, that I spend a lot of time in. What would you say to those pastors who uh, see the value in what you're sharing uh, but really don't feel equipped um, to go down that road? Yeah, that's a great question. Here's what I'd share with those pastors. You don't have to feel equipped. You don't have to have an MBA. You have people in your church and or in your community that you can rally around to this cause, and they will be thrilled. They will be excited. They will want to jump in. Let me give you an example. And so in other words, it's about getting it just like in everything in, in our world. You know, I'm not great at everything. Nobody is, right? So I want to play into the strengths, you know, I want to work in the and function in the strengths of my gifting and where I'm weak, I want to gather people around me and to work with me who uh, are able to, who are gifted in areas that I'm not. Now, now, as an example of this on the business side, think about this. This is how we underutilize people who are business savvy, if you will, in our churches today. This is how we underuse them. If, if let's say you have a business owner, he's entrepreneurially successful businessman, attends your church. Um, and so you say to that person, Hey, uh, you know, Sam, would you mind, boy, you're so friendly. You're so outgoing. Would you be a greeter at our front door on Sunday mornings? Would you, would you mind being a part of our first impression team, being a greeter? And Sam, of course, he's a good spirit. He's going, sure. I'll be glad to do that. But what did you do? You just took an entrepreneurial slash owner and you made him an employee. You see the wasted talent in that, the wasted effort. 
Now, then you could say to him, you could say, hey, Sam, you've been doing such a great job as a greeter. Um, you know, we could sure use your leadership and really trying to figure out how we can do our first impressions better and how we can make it stronger and, and, and also getting other people to join and kind of managing, managing the schedules. Would you mind being the leader of our first impression team? You think you could take over? And he goes, sure, he's a good heart. He does it. What did you do? You made an owner a manager. Mm. If you go to the owner, an entrepreneurial business guy, and you say, here's my situation. Our budget is 10% off. And I'm thinking ties and offerings, you can't keep begging people for money. I'm thinking, what if $28,000 a year we're spending in janitorial costs? What if we could take church assets, create a small janitorial company, outsource to other companies, lower what they're paying, put people three people to work, and then clean our church for free, and we'll save $28,000 a year? Do you think, small business owner, you could figure that out? What do you think that owner's going to do? How excited do you think he's going to be? Right. How invested? You see what I'm saying? Yeah. So the American church takes owners and business people and makes them employees and managers. All right? We need to free them up and unleash them to be for-profit business owners, in, in a sense, within the church, whether in truly creating for-profit business or thinking smart about the business aspect of the church, leveraging church assets to generate for-profit income that blesses the community and at the same time helps fund mission, particularly as we look ahead to losing tithes and offerings in the years to come, which I firmly believe will happen. Yeah, that's that, that's good. Uh, that's excellent. I appreciate that, Mark. Now, I want to go back to something that you touched on uh, just briefly earlier. You touched a bit on metrics, and we've all probably you know heard the phrase, you are what you measure. And in many ways, it seems that in the American church, pastors have seemed to be pressured over the years to uh, kind of measure the impact their church is having based upon the number of people who show up or or their buildings or how big their budget is, those types of things. And this kind of paradigm shift that you write about in Disruption, what are the metrics that become important? Yeah. Um, well, no, that's exactly right. And, and let me just preface this by saying I'm not against numbers, dollars, and buildings. I mean, I'd, but but here's the deal, or or what in church planning is called explosive growth, right? So church planners go out and they're they're told by the denominations networks, oh, you got to get to 200, you got to break the 200 barrier, you got to get there within two years and be sustainable. Hey, here's the deal: if it was about explosive growth in in a, in a in a quick time frame, Jesus was a horrible failure. <laughs> um, I tweeted yesterday. Um, literally, I tweeted this yesterday because I saw some, another person talking about breaking the 200 barrier. Jesus never broke the 200 barrier, ever. Maybe he had, what, 70 people on a good day? And sure, when he did a big event, like he did a couple burger bashes, fed the whole community, thousands <laughs> show up, right? Right. Jesus never broke the 200 barrier, ever. Didn't even talk about that. So here's my point. Um, if it's about explosive growth, if it's about large numbers, churches filled numbers are... Jesus was a horrible failure. Obviously, he wasn't. It's our grid. It's our understanding that needs to be disrupted. Our thinking needs to be disrupted. Our change. Um, and here's a, here's another thing. Again, prefacing my comment, what I realized when I left the church as a youth pastor, uh, I was there eight years. Went from two to five thousand people. My youth group from one hundred and fifty to six hundred. I ended up with nine full-time people on my staff. Three point five million dollars student center that I got to design and build, pay cash for. Um, I left that environment to go to the inner city of, of Little Rock, Arkansas and start a church for all people. 
when I left this otherwise very large church, big, etc., um, I thought, I assumed we had lots of influence in our city. A church of 5,000 people in a town of 200,000, that casts a long shadow. Um, then I got away from that church, and I started my little church, and within a couple of years, we had 75, 80, maybe 100 people. Um, I, I got called by a writer, a Warren Bird from Leadership Network. He said, I just think what you're doing is fascinating. I want to put you in a book on church planning, bringing diverse people together to walk, work, worship God together as one. Christianity Today put us in the middle of the magazine, 2005, Big Dream in Little Rock. The mayor of the city came to me. I need you to be on this board. I just think it's fascinating you left this big church. And on and on I could go. I wasn't seeking attention. I wasn't calling people up and say, hey, put me on a board, write about me. But what I realized is that even I, had, I just had 100 people, but the church that I left and the pastors of that church, the mayor wasn't calling and asking them to be on the board. They weren't being written about in Christianity Today, even though they had 5,000 people, beautiful facility, the works. And I sat back one day and I said, what is the deal? What is going on here? And that's when I realized that a city's like a pie. And, and let's just say it's a 10-slice pie or pizza, whatever you want to call it. There's these 10 slices. Well, yes, when 5,000 5, people is a lot of people. But if they're all white, they're all conservative, they're all Republican, they all live in the suburbs, etc., it's 5,000 of the same people, so when they get out on a Sunday morning, they just go into two or three slices of the pie. Why? Because they live in the same neighborhoods, work in the same industries, run in the same social circles, their kids go to the same schools. But, but my little hundred people, when I got out, I had the U.S. Senator go back to the Senate. I had the bricklayer go back to laying bricks. The homeless people go across the river back to the camp. Everything in between, black, white, Asian, Hispanic, rich, poor. And what I realized is our 100 people we're going into seven or eight or even nine slices of the pie. And that's when I realized it's not about size, it's about influence. And the greater the diversity of your church, the greater your influence in the community for the reasons I just said. And that should be the metric, creating healthy, multi-ethnic, economically diverse churches that truly reflect the kingdom of God on earth as in heaven, that reflect their communities because when you bring Republicans and Democrats, blacks and whites, rich and poor, etc., into one space and they willingly walk, work, and worship God together as one, you have power, you have influence, and you are ahead of the culture and become a leading voice in your own community to bring change. That's Matthew 5.16 in action. That's what gets us beyond rhetoric to results for the glory of God. Oh, that's, that's awesome, brother. Now, we've discussed a lot, Mark, and we certainly appreciate that. But I was wondering, what additional advice would you offer pastors and ministry leaders that maybe we haven't touched on in this conversation? Yeah. Well, seriously, the first advice I'd give them is read my new book, Disruption, because this explains where the American church is, where its future is, and how to get there. And it's complete disruptive thinking. I tie it into the business concept of disruption, etc. So I seriously, and I'm not being self-serving, I would read that book like thousands of others are getting their hands on. It's going to change the way we approach church. Uh, it's fully articulated from a biblical standpoint, practical standpoint. So I would say that. But part of getting to the place of disruption in your church where it is repurposed to redeem the community, here is what I would say, what we haven't touched on. This kind only comes out through prayer and fasting. And what I mean by that is there is an inherent 50, 60-year-old system of church planning, growth, and development with its accompanying metrics 
that is ingrained in the American church that this is not only the way to do things, it's the biblical way to do things. I think in terms of those metrics, as we already talked about, as well as the homogeneous unit principle being misapplied, targeting people groups rather than communities in terms of how you plant, grow, or develop a church, I don't think any of that's actually biblical, and that's a whole other discussion. But the point is, this what, what I'm talking about and the future of the American church is a different in-kind animal, as it were. The same way when the disciples went to Christ and said, how come we can't cast out this demon? He goes, because this kind's different. What I'm talking about is different. And so, so the rules, the ways, um, the past, the status quo will not apply. It will not work in this situation. And that's what I mean by quoting that verse uh, as an illustration. I'm saying if you approach the future the way the current status quo tells you to do it, the way it's based on the past, you will not be able to redeem your community. You will still function in the spiritual space. You will have losing, you'll be losing credibility, losing influence. And at the end of the day, all you'll be doing is maintaining and managing decline in the future in your local church, decline of numbers, decline of outreach, decline of budget, unless you completely disrupt your thinking and get on board with the future of the American church. Now, and that's displayed in disruption. By understanding all that, this is what I want to say and what we haven't talked about. It requires tremendous patience. It requires tremendous perseverance. It requires tremendous passion. And at the end of the day, tremendous prayer. And, and we are not accustomed in the American church or in America in general to being patient. You have to let God bring this out. We have to be intentional. Um, but at the same time, we have to allow God use and, and, and make this thing happen in his way, in his time, for his purposes and glory. And we've got to get comfortable with not being in control with being dependent, and that's a place and space of patience that, that we don't typically have. One other quick thing is the way we interact on Facebook, social media, internet, etc. Pastors have, in my opinion, if you play to extreme bases, all you're doing is playing to your effective base. You have got to manage the middle, and, and when you take positions and uh, on, let's just say it was, I'm for Trump or against Trump, for Clinton or against Clinton, uh, on a po political side, when you make extreme statements, the likes, the retweets, etc., are all from the people who already agree with that statement. And all you do is alienate the people, further alienate the people that don't. We should desire to be peacemakers. We should desire to bring both ends to the middle. This is what Christ prayed in Matthew 5, 9, or forecast in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they truly are the children of God. And in every beatitude, you get something for what you do. There's only one that you are identified with someone for what you do. And that's Matthew 5, 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of the God. The way we talk, the way we interact, the way we preach, we have got to become less polarized and more peaceful in our dialogue because this is what the world is longing to. It becomes an attractive witness for the gospel. It gives you entree to not only the people who already agree with you, but those who don't necessarily, but they like you, they appreciate you, and therefore they listen to you. And slowly over time, the seeds are sown, the water is poured, the sun shines, and fruit comes forth. We've got to allow God to do that. We've got to reposition ourselves on, in social media and the way we talk uh, and to get away from polarization to peacemaking. So good, brother. Thank you so much for sharing with us. If, if someone wants to connect with you, how can they do that? Websites, Twitter, 
Um, can you just share how that people can connect with you or with your book? Uh, you bet. Um, on Twitter, it's Mark Demaz, M-A-R-K, Demaz, last name, D like David, E, Y like yellow, M like Mary, A, Z like zebra. So Mark Demaz on Twitter. Uh, my, you can email my assistant, Allison, A-L-I-S-O-N, at mosaics.info. That's M like Mary, O-S like Sam, A-I-X like x-ray, dot info. I'd be glad to talk to you, spend 30 minutes with you, download, debrief, whatever, um, do 30 minutes call when people inquire like that. So Allison at mosaics.info. And um, again, you can just Google my name and, and find your way on Amazon to my author page, different books, Disruption, Building a Healthy Multi-Ethnic Church, and our latest uh, Multi-Ethnic Conversations, an eight-week daily uh, devotional small group curriculum that will bring the conversation of race, class, culture into your church, into the living rooms, into your small group systems in a very powerful way. It's called Multi-Ethnic Conversations. You can find that on Amazon as well. That's excellent, brother. Again, thank you so much for making time for us. And I know that our audience, um, I'm sure, has a lot to, to think think on and um, to be challenged about. And uh, we're just praying uh, with you and with them that God will continue to guide and direct them um, as they seek to impact their communities and to really be the church God has called us to be. So thank you, Mark. We certainly appreciate you. You bet. Great to be with you. And thanks for having me. And thank you to our listeners. For joining us on today's episode. We certainly hope you enjoyed the podcast. And if you are indeed finding value from the Church Leaders podcast, we'd appreciate you taking just a few moments to jump over onto iTunes and to leave us a review. Your positive reviews and ratings help other church leaders find our podcast so they can benefit as well. We thank you so much in advance. And until next time, this is Jason Day encouraging you to love well and lead well. You've been listening to the Church Leaders Podcast. For articles, videos, and free resources that will help you lead better every day, visit our website, churchleaders.com. Thanks for listening.